I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Go to the middle of your Bible and turn right if you're not familiar with where Proverbs is. We're going to read this morning from chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Please give it your attention. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I was listening to the radio a couple days ago. Actually, the morning after the very first NFL football game between the Seahawks and the Packers. And they were talking about the game and talking about the Seahawks in particular because they played so well. And they got to talking about Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seahawks. And Russell, if you know anything about Russell Wilson, he professes to be a believer. He's a brother in the Lord. But they made a comment about him that stood out to me, just jumped out at me when I heard it. They said about Russell Wilson, just kind of summarizing what makes him so good, they said, quote, in every situation, he always makes the right decision. In every situation, he always makes the right decision. Now, even in football terms, that's a hyperbole, I'm sure. But could you think of, as somebody who professes faith in Christ, how much would he love to have that epitaph be written on his tombstone? In every situation, he always chose what is right. I would love for somebody to say that about my life someday. From the moment you get up in the morning, your life is made up of a a sequence of decisions. Small decisions, medium-sized decisions, and large decisions. Every day is just one list of decision after another. First thing on your mind, do I hit that snooze button again or don't I? What shirt should I wear this morning? What should I eat for breakfast? What's the quickest way to work or to class? What should be number one on my to-do list for today? And number two and number three? What television show should I watch as I relax? Just one long sequence of decision after decision after decision. Our high school students this fall in their Sunday school class are studying the great Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress. Fantastic book. In that story, as you know the story, it's about a seeker named Christian. And Christian begins a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And he begins that journey by finding what they call the straight and narrow 
King's Highway. And as he proceeds through the course of the story on the King's Highway, seeking to stay on the path and not wander off into danger and destruction, it's just one series of choices after another. Continually being tempted, continually being distracted, and needing to make the right choices to be successful. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I'm not particularly addressing you at the moment, but if you do know Jesus Christ, then you know that the decisions you made in your life, the small ones, medium ones, and big ones that you made in your life before you came to know Christ, were all made in a self-centered way. You looked at every choice you had to make and you said to yourself, what's going to be the most benefit to me and what's going to result in the best circumstances for me? That's how you made all these choices. But now that you've come to know Christ, he's changed your heart. He's given you a new nature. Along with the struggle towards selfishness, you also now have a new desire, a desire to do what's going to benefit others and what's going to bring glory to God. How do you know how to do that? How do you know how to make right decisions? Well, of course, we have the Word of God. This is God's Word without error, revealed truth, and it gives us an awful lot of detailed information about how to make right choices. It tells us not to worship idols, it tells us not to lie or to steal or to commit adultery. It tells us to forgive others. It tells us to give to the poor. It gives us an awful lot of instruction about how to live our lives, how to make those right choices. But how do you make choices when the Bible doesn't spell it out clearly? What about those decisions, some of them very big decisions we have to make, where we can't go to chapter and verse to get a clear answer from God's word? How do we make good decisions then? Good decisions about our future. I know in this room there are people that are making big decisions about their education, big decisions about their job, big decisions about marriage, big decisions about parenting, big decisions that deal with finances. There are a lot of big decisions to be made. How do you know you're going to make the right choice if that's what life is about, is making right choices? Have you ever prayed that prayer and you've been so frustrated with trying to find out what God's will is in these kind of matters? You say, God, I'm tired. Just write it in the sky for me. Or speak to me. Let me hear your voice. Tell me what to do. I'll make the decision you want me to make. Just tell me what to do. We often long for that audible voice or for some sign to make it easy, to make it clear to us. But that's not God's normal way of dealing with us. Some churches will teach you it is, but it's not. That's not how he normally guides us through life. Why? Why doesn't he speak to us? Why doesn't he put signs in our path to help us to make the good choice? If he really loved us, why wouldn't he do that? If he really wants us to make right choices, why doesn't he? Matter of fact, his silence at times like that can even cause us to doubt his existence, can it? I mean, if God really loves me and he's really involved in my life, why doesn't he give me that kind of an answer? Well, let me talk to you parents for a moment. Your child's working on his homework, working on his math. He comes to you with a math problem. 
He says, Dad, I can't finish my homework because I can't figure out how to do this problem. Help me. What do you do as a parent? Do you sit down, take his homework sheet, and do all the figures and come up with your bottom line answer and say, okay, son, daughter, here's the answer. Go ahead and put it in the blank and turn it in. Is that how you help him as a parent? Not if you're a good parent. What do you do? You try to help your child understand how to solve the problem so that they can do it themselves so that they don't have to come to you for bottom line answers in every situation. That's how you treat children as sinners as parents. Why would you expect God to do anything less with you? He wants you to become wise. He wants you to think like he thinks. He wants you to make decisions as he would make them. He wants you to make the right decision because you think his thoughts after him. And that's really what wisdom is. It's the key to navigating life along that narrow path. And that's what the book of Proverbs is about. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom. And we're going to be studying, for the next number of weeks, we're going to be going through the book of Proverbs, studying and trying to gain wisdom from what God has revealed to us. And we're going to find that this book is given to us to teach us to think God's thoughts after him. To do problem-solving guided by the principles of his word, to be able to apply his word to the circumstances and to the people in our lives to make good decisions. That's really what the book of Proverbs is about. It says here in verse 1 that the Proverbs are of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. Now, as we go through the book of Proverbs, we'll find out that he didn't write every last proverb in this book. There are some sections that are attributed to other wise men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we do assume that Solomon is the primary author of these Proverbs. Just like David is considered the author of the book of Psalms, even though he didn't write every last psalm, but he wrote a large majority of them. And so it is with Solomon in Proverbs. If you know anything about the life of Solomon, there was a defining moment in his life. After he had ascended to the throne, after his father David had died, and he took over the throne as the king of Israel. The Lord came to him and offered him something amazing. He said, Solomon, ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for long life. But he asked for wisdom. To quote him exactly, this is what Solomon asked for and received. He received a wise and discerning mind. Do you ever think about how God often answers our prayers before we ask for them? Obviously, Solomon had received an answer to this prayer before he even asked for it, or else he wouldn't have asked for it. He wouldn't have asked for wisdom if he hadn't already been given, in God's wisdom, this gift of wisdom, this amazing wisdom. And God was so pleased that Solomon recognized that the greatest gift, the most wonderful treasure that he could acquire in life was not riches and fame or long life, but wisdom. And God was so pleased with his heart that he actually gave him all those other things, the fame, the long life, and riches, and power. 
Solomon's wisdom was legendary, not just in Israel, but throughout the world. There's a wonderful description of it. Let me read it for you. It's from the end of chapter 4 of 1 Kings. Listen to this description of the wisdom of Solomon. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and of all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. One example of that great wisdom is that he chose to have some of those Proverbs, the many thousands of Proverbs that God gave to him, he had some of them put in writing and passed down through the generations. And by God's grace, we have them today, what we call the book of Proverbs. In verses 2 to 7 that I want to spend our time looking at this morning, in verses 2 to 7, it basically is the introduction to this book. It's the preamble. What Solomon, or if it was one of the other writers, one of the compilers, put together was an introduction to the entire book telling us why it's important that we study it. So what better thing for us to look at as we begin the study? This is why, this is the value of the book of Proverbs. And it's interesting, as he tries to whet our appetite, basically what he begins to do is try to define what wisdom is. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what wisdom is. And what he does, it's interesting, and this is very common in the book of Proverbs, is he uses repetition, and repetition in the sense of using a list of words that all have slightly different meanings to them. And when you take that list of words that you see in those first few verses, and you put them all together, and you get all the little nuances of what those different words mean, what you end up with is this compilation, this picture of what wisdom is. It's a sum total of the the terms that he tries to define here. I want to work through those words just kind of quickly here for a moment because it's kind of like if you had this huge diamond. You know what diamonds are like. If it's cut, it's got all the different facets. If you were to hold up a diamond, you could turn it around so you could see the light shining off all the different facets. That's kind of what he's doing with wisdom here in this first section. He's holding up wisdom and saying, look at all these beautiful facets, different aspects of what wisdom is. And he gives it in terms of these words. The first word we come across is instruction. Now, again, these, ver- these words, we have kind of vague e- understandings of them in English, but you take it back to the original language, and you get some nuances that are kind of lost in English. And in this word instruction, in the original Hebrew, it has the idea of correction with it, discipline. In other words, instruction that results in reward when you receive it and put it into practice well, and punishment when you don't receive it and put it, put it into practice well. So it's instruction, but it has that added idea of correction with it. And what that speaks to is that in order to really have wisdom, to acquire wisdom, you have to have a humble and teachable spirit. The military understands this. In the military, a lot of times, people, young people that are having problems with rebellion used to be, not so much anymore, it used to be you go to the military to really begin to learn, to to begin to become disciplined. And the military understands that there is a stubborn will that needs to be broken in a sense. 
so that you can become submissive, so that you can receive instruction. And that's what's kind of included in this idea. I wish that our public education system would get back to that idea and understand that there is a stubborn, rebellious will in us naturally, that we're not teachable, and that that instruction has to include that idea of leading us to a humble and submissive spirit to be teachable. The second term, well, actually two terms that are very similar, insight and wise dealing. Insight and wise dealing. And these words in the original language speak to the ability to read people well and to read circumstances well. In other words, to be able to find yourself dealing with somebody and be able to put yourself in their shoes, see how they see it, to to understand what they're thinking, how they feel, to be able to read a person well, or in your circumstances, to be able to interpret the circumstances well, to have a good sensitivity in that way. That's what these words allude to. The third word is prudence. And again, in the original language, the word prudence here is related to the ability to look down the road and see the consequences to your choices. To be able to look down the road and see the consequences to your choices. Matter of fact, we're going to find out that kind of a characteristic of a fool, and a fool is a person who is not wise, it's the opposite of wisdom, that a fool is someone who finds themselves in circumstances and can't figure out how they got there. And you've heard that many times, haven't you? How did I get here? I had no idea. I never dreamed that choices I made would end up with me in the dire straits that I'm in. So he uses the word prudence, be able to look down the road and see the consequences and make good choices as a result of it. The next term that you see there is knowledge. And it's interesting that knowledge is included because, as we'll see over and over, that knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. Matter of fact, there are, very, there are a lot of knowledgeable fools in the world, we'll see. But wisdom is not less than knowledge. Wisdom is more than knowledge, but it's not less than knowledge. And knowledge, especially in the context of the book of Proverbs, the knowledge of God's word, that's the raw data from which you form wisdom. You need to know truth so that God can form wisdom within you. In Joshua chapter 1, hear this great advice from the Word of God. It says, This book of the law, the Word of God, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Knowledge. Knowledge of truth as God has revealed it in creation, and more importantly, as God has revealed it in his Word, is foundational to acquiring wisdom. And then the last term I want to point out there is discretion. And the word discretion in the original means the the ability to kind of see through deception. In other words, to not be easily fooled. Biblically speaking, the opposite of being discreet is to be naive. To be easily fooled. To see through deception is another term that adds an aspect of what wisdom is. So what that implies is that wisdom sees the difference clearly between right and wrong. And so wisdom has an ethical component to it, a moral component to it. And that's why in verse 3 it lists aspects of this wisdom as, as dealing with issues of righteousness and justice and equity. Wisdom is moral because it deals with the truth of God. So putting all this together... 
instruction, insight, wise dealing, prudence, knowledge, discretion, all these different facets of what wisdom is, you end up with a, a definition something like this, that wisdom is, is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Let me read that again. Wisdom is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Or as one commentator put it, skill in the art of godly living. That's what wisdom is. And it's all about making right choices. Interestingly, if you read journals, articles in the psychological field, you'll come across, at least in pop psychology, they talk a lot about the difference between IQ and EQ. IQ, intelligence quotient, is a measurement we've used forever to try to measure a person to say, how intelligent are you? But they figured out, a long time ago, that just knowing how intelligent a person is doesn't necessarily say how successful they're going to be in life. And so they came up with a measurement called emotional quotient, or emotional intelligence, where they try to measure your, your abilities to interact with, control, and work through your emotions. So things like being able to perceive and control and evaluate your emotions and the emotions of people around you. That becomes emotional intelligence. And it includes such valuable traits as self-control and discipline and persistence and empathy. And what they found is that those people they measure with greater EQ, emotional intelligence, are actually, that's a much better indicator of people that are going to be successful in life than people who have high IQ. Well, really, the ideal then, isn't it, to have IQ and EQ, and they've actually come up with, and this is, again, secular psychology, they've come up with an MQ, which is the moral quotient or moral intelligence, and that deals with issues of integrity and responsibility and even forgiveness, the ability to forgive, and they call that the MQ. So, start with the IQ, intelligence, your knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge, Emotional intelligence, moral intelligence, you're almost to biblical wisdom, aren't you? You're almost there. If I could add one thing to IQ and EQ and MQ, I would add SQ, spiritual intelligence, a spiritual element. And then I think you begin to get this multifaceted idea of what biblical wisdom is, and that brings us to what's the foundation of real wisdom. Not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God's word. What's the foundation of wisdom? And that's where you come to verse 7. In verse 7, you have the theme of the entire book of Proverbs. Really, in a sense, you've got the theme of the entire Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Later on, it, it'll say in the book of Proverbs, actually using the equivalent term, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've got to begin with the fear of the Lord, or else you're not truly ever going to be wise. If life is a path made up of wise choices, then the fear of the Lord is the gate to that path. As a matter of fact, it's the path itself. And in terms of Pilgrim's Progress, if you know the story, the journey begins at the wicket gate. Not the wicked gate with a D, but the wicket gate with a T. And the gate is what he has to go through the gate to begin on the journey to the celestial city. 
And really what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is that the gate is the fear of the Lord. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you will never be in the eyes of God wise. The word fear, when you're talking about fearing the Lord, of course we say this all the time, it doesn't mean cowering in terror before the Lord. It's reverent awe, being totally in awe of who God is and of his presence and being submissive and reverent in his presence. That's what fear of the Lord is. Being aware that you're in the very presence of someone, a being who is wise beyond your comprehension. You're in the very presence of a being who is powerful and sovereign beyond your comprehension. You're in the very presence of a being who created everything that exists and a being who is holy and righteous beyond your comprehension. That means that the key to wisdom is the awareness that you are continually in the very presence of God, your creator, your judge, and your redeemer. The great men in church history used a Latin term for this. They call it corum Deo, which means before the gaze of God. That that's the beginning of wisdom, is understanding that all of your life, every moment, every thought in your head, every feeling in your heart, every action you take, every choice that you make, is done in the very presence of this great and powerful and good God. And you're before his gaze at every moment. David wrote of this kind of wisdom, we believe it was David, wrote Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light is, it, and the light be about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. That's the fear of the Lord. That's life before the gaze of God. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's that understanding. But it goes beyond that. It's also knowing that you are in the presence of this God, that you are before his gaze, that he knows you inside and out, and that he loves you with a love that is also far beyond your comprehension. You need to know that love to truly have the fear of the Lord. When I have my devotions in the morning, I read my Bible on the sun porch, which is attached to the back of our house. And it's a pretty narrow sun porch, and I intentionally set up two bird feeders just outside the window, a matter of fact, just inches from the window of the back of the sun porch, so that when I'm sitting in the chair, I'm literally only a few feet away from the bird feeders. And I just love it in the morning when the birds come and they land on the tree next to the feeders, and they kind of have to work up their guts to come and land on the bird feeder because they can see me. I'm that close. And they see me sitting there. And they're very skittish because of that. 
Now, I know you're saying, well, if you really were wise, you'd move the bird feeder farther away so they couldn't see you. But my point is, I want to see them that close. I, I just love being able to see the details of how God created these birds and the beauty. And so I want them that close, so I take the chance that I might actually scare them away. Because the ones that are brave enough to come close, I really get to see well. And I enjoy that so much. But they're so skittish. They're so fearful of me that they often won't come to the feeder. Or if they do, they have to really work up a lot of courage to do it. And I sit there thinking a lot of times, boy, I just wish that they understood that I'm the one who puts the food in the feeder. I'm the one who makes sure it's there for them every day. I'm the one who protects them from my cats. I'm the one who is there to protect them and to feed them, and they give me great joy. I wish they understood that, because if they did, I could take the window out. They could come and land on my hand and feed out of my hand, knowing all along that I could crush them in a second, but yet knowing that I won't do it because I love them so much and I care for them and protect them. I was sitting there having devotions one day, and I thought of that analogy, and I was just blown away by it. That's what it is to live before the gaze of God, to know his great power, his sovereignty, his control over my life, but to know that he loves me like that. But how do I know that? How do I know that he's not going to crush me? Well, that brings me to the last point, which is wisdom personified. Wisdom personified. Wisdom became a man. You know, Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, given this huge gift of wisdom, you know what he's remembered for. He's remembered for his wisdom, but he's ultimately remembered for loving pagan women. 700 foreign wives and 300 mistresses and the life of idolatry that it led him into. Solomon, in spite of that great gift of wisdom that was given to him, Solomon was a sinner like you and me. And he wasted it. If Solomon needs a savior, you better believe you and I need a savior. Because wisdom won't save you by itself. John's gospel begins by talking about the word. It says the word existed eternally before creation. The word was with God and the word was God. And what John's getting at there, I think, in a sense, is he's saying Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he is wisdom. He existed eternally. And that the wisdom of God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he dwelt among us, even as a 12-year-old boy, he sat in the temple in Jerusalem and confounded the experts in the scriptures with his understanding and wisdom. Later on in his earthly ministry, he taught with such power and such insight and such wisdom that people were amazed and say, where did this man get this wisdom? We've never seen anything like it. Jesus himself made a dramatic claim about his teaching over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Listen to what he says about his own teaching. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You hear what he's saying? He's saying just basically the same thing the book of Proverbs is saying. Here is the way of wisdom. I am giving you my teachings are the way of wisdom. Live your life by these teachings and you'll build upon the rock. Reject these teachings and you're a fool who will face ultimate destruction. The scribes and the Pharisees, experts in the word of God, so to speak, were fools because they stood before wisdom incarnate and rejected him. In the words of Proverbs 1, they despised wisdom. And Jesus responded over in Matthew 12 by comparing himself to Solomon. And listen to what he says. Matthew 12, verse 42. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, as we know the story in the life of Solomon, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Wisdom incarnate, the word in flesh. Paul, when he prayed for the church, when he prayed for all believers, you and me, this is what he prayed. He said, to reach all of the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's in Colossians 2. Your life is a journey that's made up of a long sequence of choices, small, middle, and large. And that takes place on a narrow path that is laid out in God's word and ultimately laid out in Christ himself. We need Jesus to walk that path. But you know what? We need Jesus to get on that path. In the Pilgrim's Progress, he had to go to the gate to get on to the king's highway. And when he went to the gate, which, as I said, represents the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, he then was led to the cross. When he got to the cross, he understood that all of his foolishness, this this burden that he was carrying on his back, the burden of shame and guilt because of his foolish choices in life, when he went to the cross and kneeled at the cross, that burden rolled off his shoulders down the hill and into the empty tomb and was put as far as way as east is from west. You see, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But he also said, I am the door. I am the gate. And he is the way. He is the gate that leads to the path. He is the means by which we, by grace, are placed on the path of walking in wisdom. And now... What the world calls wisdom has been turned upside down. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
we're going to study the book of Proverbs. What we're going to find in the book of Proverbs is a lot of wisdom for how to make the decisions in life. And we're going to look through it topically. We're going to look at the themes that the book of Proverbs covers. We're going to look at how God's word in Proverbs applies to important areas like work, finances, family, relationships. But understand that without Jesus Christ, it's all meaningless. And that he is the ultimate example of everything we're going to study. And this is all ultimately about him. We live in an information age and we face an increasing number of choices. But I'm going to simplify your life for you. There are only two paths you can take. Wisdom or foolishness. And there's only two kinds of sinners in the world. Those that are perishing in their foolishness and those that are being saved through Christ and made to look like him and to think like him and make decisions like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and your spirit. Help us to become wise. Help us to grow in our knowledge of what is true. Teach us, Lord. Make us humble and submissive and teachable. Fill us with the fear of the Lord, an understanding of your greatness and awe before your presence, filled with the love and the mercy of the cross that will drive us forward. Help us to make good decisions in all aspects of our lives. And may Christ be glorified, we pray in his name. Amen.